From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Do all of that. You get them through school, you get them through college and you think, that's it. Job done. Not job done. One estimate was was something like 1.7 trillion, like 7% of the US economy is is the cost of of obesity. You're going to spend 2,000 euros, you need to put 200 euros a month aside for your holiday next July. If you can't afford 200 euros, you can't afford to go on holidays. You can't say that about Christmas, Claire, because like you can, because you're a bit more bad humbug than I am, right? But you just just said it. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, New Ross marks the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Door-to-door danger, a new scam targets charity donors. And the Irish contestant in Squid Game, The Challenge. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's more of an Alice in Borderland guy. On this morning's 9 o'clock show monologue, Brendan Courtney jumped straight into Bradley Cooper's new movie, Maestro. Bradley Cooper's new movie with uh, Kerry Mulligan is out in cinemas today for a limited theatrical release, 22nd today, um, heading to Netflix on the 20th of December. And it does sound like, I'd say, the kind of movie you want to see on the big screen because he plays um, the conductor, legendary conductor, Leonard Bernstein, who is famous for writing, I suppose, most of all, West Side Story, um, who had a kind of very interesting life, obviously set in around the, I think, the 20s, 30s of whatever Hollywood, the Hollywood golden era. But... um, we were the other day. I was just mentioning that we'd read that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Still got a little bit of a head cold. Just clearing that up. <laughs> um, please don't sell flowers. I'm fine. Um, we were talking about the fact that he'd taken about six years to train himself or teach himself to conduct the orchestra, um, and, and emanate the brilliant Bernstein. And we were like, that's kind of amazing. He's a bit of a the new Daniel Day Lewis kind of thing. But he he's, he's actually opened up about where his love for conducting came from. And he's interviewed by Gail King on Tuesday on CBS this morning. She's a dreadful interrupter now. I have I, as an interviewer, but we did pull out a clip of him saying where his inspiration came from uh, Looney Tunes. Have a little listen to this. For me, it started with Tom and Jerry and Bugs Bunny as a kid watching them conduct, asking Santa Claus for a baton when I was about eight or so and then uh, just being obsessed with conducting. There was a magical quality that you just do that and sound comes out, you know, and that's where it began. And uh, it was just this incredible feeling of being a maestro, really. I'll never oh. probably do anything more terrifying, even singing at the Oscars or like performing that's at Glastonbury. Because the whole, all the, all the orchestra, this is what they've done yeah. their entire life. Yeah. And I'm sitting there <laughs> talking like Leonard Bernstein directing them. And they're going like, who the this guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's going to conduct us, you know, and, and, and by the way, I messed it up the whole first day. Did you? And it wasn't until the second day, one take, and, and, I, and it all worked. Uh, he also um, addresses for the first time, because he weighs in on the controversy surrounding his use of a prosthetic nose, um, which would be, I suppose, the first time this has probably been debated at this level. Um, he hadn't spoken about it before um, and it caused a lot of controversy. And I think interesting for some of his team, you know, Kazuhiro, who was the prosthetic makeup artist, apologised for the prosthetic nose at the Venice Film Festival back in September. So kind of maybe acknowledging there might have been a bit of an issue with it. But he, he Bradley ta- uh, tackles it head on and kind of explains it really well why he chose to controversially go with the prosthetic nose, which um, the Hollywood reporter, the chief TV critic there said it was ethnic cosplay and very problematic. And here's how he tackled the question. The truth is, I, I've done this whole project out of love, and it's so clear to me 
where I come from. We tried to, I thought, because my nose is very similar to Lenny's, actually. Mm -hmm. And so the, like, the, the prosthetic is actually like, like a silk sheet. And, and I thought maybe we don't need to do it because we could take down time of, of prep, but it's all about balance. And you know, he is, my lips are nothing like Lenny's and my chin. And so we had that and it just didn't look right. So when he's young, we had prosthetic here and then it just moves out. So by the time he's older, it's the whole face. So we just had to do it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't believe he's a human being. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I've read that a few times that as you get older, your features, uh, your nose and your ears are the only features that keep growing. Interesting. That's a kind of a preview, I guess, of Bradley Cooper's new film, Maestro, which opens in selected cinemas today. And here, here for Aideen Gormley's iconic movies and musicals on Lyric FM every Saturday afternoon, by the way. A fabulous show. So what's next? Well, I'm afraid it's loneliness. Yesterday, you might have heard uh, Ray was talking about our new pandemic in Ireland, which is loneliness. And he had a, a, a Anne-Marie Creven, the psychologist from UL, on talking about uh, really how concerned she is about the high rates of loneliness and people identifying with loneliness and speaking openly, which, of course, with all these things is a challenge, uh, is, is part of the solution, is a sort of acknowledging it. Um, very interesting. And one of the things that I'm fascinated about, and actually, funny enough, Ray is fascinated about, is centenarians. And one of the pillars for a long life is community apart from a good diet and good sleep and plenty of water and it's community is having a purpose within your community and uh, so yeah I suppose with the falling away of institutions I, I was actually went to went to a, a, a month's mind mass with my mother in the Oblates in, in Chicor and the priest and it was like a Tuesday morning and there was, it was just speckled with like people over 65 in this sort of 10 o'clock and I just went to a company ma'am and drive her up and drive her back and the priest announced that the oblates will be closing down. And there was a, an audible oh, from the audience that this was more than, you know, a church, these people. This was their community. This is where they met every morning. So as those communities, <coughs> excuse me, break away, uh, what's left? Emptiness. No, you know, no connections. Uh, and I, I, thought, I, I think it's a very interesting subject that shining a light on will help. If you, so how do you find community? So here, here's an example. Uh, an anti-loneliness club offers friendship for $200 a month and thousands have signed up over in California. It's, of course, a startup. Startups will always have the solution to the problem, won't they? Uh, it's called Ground Floor, but they don't, they make a point of not asking you what your occupation is. It's kind of non-judgmental and it's just a phone call to apply. But they provide meeting rooms, phone booths and that kind of stuff. But they, they're very focused on wellness and they really are, their mantra is around creating community. And again, once, you know, even if you're in your 30s, we, you know, you hear of people who maybe have to, they move to a different city to go to college, then college ends, they've lost that institution, they lost the support of the family. So, you know, one in four households in America is a single household, it's one person living alone. So there's definitely something happening around the fear around this, the problems around this. And maybe we're talking about this. We, 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 we spoke to Ken Wardrop about his brilliant film, So This Is Christmas, which is, a, a, and in that he talks to a number of people who will spend Christmas alone. But would you join a club? Sure. What's the club? Of course, Groucho Marx's rule will always raise its head when the idea of joining a club arises. And... If I did join some sort of club, I'd probably have to talk to, well, the other members, wouldn't I? Maybe I need to go on a course. Another fallout and left with the, the, the ripples of the pandemic. Uh, US universities are teaching small talk to post-pandemic students, which is really interesting. So students who were taken out of, I suppose, socialisation 
for the first two years of university, which is probably um, your most important adulting years in terms of how you interact with the world, they're struggling with small talk. I mean, it's it's instantly kind of cute, isn't it? You're like, oh, God. But they're actually in, in a classroom um, in uh, the university in Colorado. It's become compulsory to do uh, uh, interpersonal communications because they really noticed that students were having struggle, having difficulty with eye contact, having difficulty uh, with just engaging yeah, because of all the study remotely thing. So he starts off by saying, and I thought this is, we can all relate to this, like students would jump in and say, don't ask age, definitely don't ask weight. I mean, my mother would ask you to leave if you asked either of them ever, or political opinion. And that's kind of the key to a successful dinner party. Don't talk about religion or politics, right? But we were saying it's never ask someone if they're pregnant. Never, even if they're 15 months, obviously pregnant. Don't ask them if they're pregnant. And how to learn the art of small talk. I think this is a very interpersonal communication. It's very cute, isn't it? What's the one question you can never ask anybody? And what's the, what's the rudest question you've ever asked? Can I just say as well, and somebody said it to me the other day, and I'm going to say it to you live on the radio. Don't tell people they look tired. They know they look tired. Thanks for that. You know who you are. Brendan, you look underslept. No, that's not good. It's not even a real word. You look like you've not got enough horizontal time. No, that's just awkward. You're looking grand, so you are. That's it. Got it. Now, more words that can annoy people. This is very interesting. I kind of like the little dig at millennials here because it was based on millennials' word words that millennials use. Okay, so that's people uh, younger than me anyway, so it's my brother's age. Um, so they did a top 20 of the most annoying words in the world uh, that some research has revealed research company have listed all the words here but what's interesting is these words actually make us cringe and uh, <laughs> cringing is really interesting for me we instinctively when we cringe someone uses a word that embarrasses us we instinctively want to distance ourselves from them hence the cringe which is physically making ourselves smaller a primitive brain cannot distinguish between a physical or a psychological threat and any awkward behaviour from others triggers that threat response so we actually recoil when we hear these words, well, that, certainly the 2,000 people um, that they polled and what the most annoying words are. Are you ready? So all of these words annoy me, so I'm well in. So I'm just going to give you the top three. In third place, awesomeness. Really annoying, that annoys us. Holly bops. I know lots of people who still say holly bops. People, it's annoying for people, apparently. And amazeballs is the number one, <laughs> amazeballs, the number one most annoying word. Number 12 is wifey. Sorry, not sorry's in there. No offence, but. And my bad is in there as well. So these words physically make people cringe. And I <laughs> I just thought that was the scientific response to cringing. So now we know if someone says amazeballs, you recoil and want to make yourself smaller. Sounds like the proper response. Am I right? Sorry. My bad. Oops. Sorry again. But sorry, sorry, as opposed to sorry, not sorry. Okay, I think that's uh, probably enough to be getting on with when it comes to this morning's 9 o'clock show monologue. Today, you might have heard, is the 60th anniversary of the death of US President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Just months before his death, JFK had visited Ireland and travelled to New Ross in County Wexford, his family's ancestral hometown, and on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, intrepid reporter Evelyn O'Rourke travelled to New Ross to find out how they're marking the anniversary. 
And I started my visit at the Dumbrody Famine Ship Experience, which is there right at the Keys, right at the spot where JFK gave that wonderful speech there 60 years ago. And they've done a brilliant job, right? There's a life-size statue of him there. So you can shake his outstretched hand, but they also have a podium where you can stand up and give his speech, you know. So it's really a really wonderful place to visit. But Sean Connick is the current CEO of the John F. Kennedy Trust. He met me at the Quayside at New Ross where we started the tour. But first, a little reminder of that famous speech on the Quayside in New Ross all those years ago from where his great-grandfather had emigrated and bear with us Claire it is an old recording you know it is from the archives bear with us but work with it and you'll hear his voice in action I'm uh, glad to be here it took 115 years to make this trip and 6,000 miles and three generations when uh, my great grandfather left here he carried uh, nothing with him except two things a strong religious faith and a strong uh, desire for liberty About uh, 50 uh, years ago, an Irishman from New Ross uh, traveled down to Washington with his family, and in order to tell his neighbors how well he was doing, he had his picture taken in front of the White House and said, "Uh, this is our summer home. Uh, Come and see us. Well, it's our home also in the winter, and I hope you will come and see us. Thank you. So, Sean Connick, good morning. Good morning. It's a beautiful day here in New Ross, sunny southeast. Now, Um, tell me... What is the connection? Well, of course, his ancestral home is four miles from New Ross here out in Dungannstown. But in 1963, John F. Kennedy came to revisit his family and relations and, of course, stopped here in the quayside in New Ross. So this is actually where he addressed the crowds on the quay on the day of the visit in 1963. And we have a small podium there. You'll see it just to the side. So this is just a few yards away, really, from the emigrant flame. Yes. And this is the podium. This is where he addressed everybody on that, that big day. You'll see the podium just there and see it just to the left-hand side of the tree. And his speech, which was only about, I think, a minute and 40 seconds odd, his speech is actually on that. So people regularly go over there, stand at the tree microphones and recite the words and people film themselves and take the photographs. You can imagine most people didn't even have a television set. And uh, Mark Minnan, who you'll interview later, I mean, Mark's dad was the mayor who welcomed President John F. Kennedy on the day here. It was a phenomenal experience for the country, not alone just New Ross. And of course, many people saw a helicopter for the first time. The helicopters flew in and landed up in our uh, Gaelic Park. You can imagine the excitement and the buzz around the town. An unbelievable emigration story because his great-great-grandfather left the quayside here in New Ross. And within three generations, here was an Irish descendant taking control of the most powerful nation in the world. He didn't forget where he came from here in New Ross and he came to New Ross. And when that visit happened back in 1963, mm. there was a huge community effort involved just to bring that whole event together. And you heard about that. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, so many people involved there have passed on now. But I was delighted to get to meet Mark Minahan, as Sean mentioned there. And his dad, Andy, Mr. Mayor, as he was known, had been chair of the council at the time and he was a determined man. He started writing to JFK's team as soon as he heard that JFK might be a potential candidate for the oh, American he was presidency. On the ball. He was all oh, amazing stories about him. <laughs> we sat there for ages chatting about him. And then when JFK was elected, Mark's dad was on hand to get New Ross onto the Irish tour there as well as long as as well as he saved the huge community effort there but he was on the quayside with JFK so here Mark Minhan sitting right there at the quayside tells me more He was the chairman of the council in New Ross when John F. Kennedy came to New Ross And his name was? And his name was Andy Minahan or Minahan he always Andy always called it but we've eventually given in to what everybody else calls it and he had, he'd been chairman for a good while. As soon as they found out about JFK putting his head above the parapet, they were writing to him and best wishes for every time he won anything. So he, the connection, yeah. they were starting yeah, no, the connection. Slowly, quietly, it was 
<laughs> they weren't letting them away. I mean, no, nothing like that had ever happened here before, you know. So when John F. Kennedy became the candidate, he won the Democratic nomination and then he won the election. Sure, we were way in a hack and they had all sorts of this torchlight parades and everything like that when... What, the reaction well, here was so enthusiastic. Oh, of course. And, and every, every organisation in the town was claiming a bit of him, you know what I mean? Just from looking at what happened along the way, I'd say that he hadn't really thought about coming here. He got so much stuff from Neuros that he eventually said to Ted, would you go over and see what, what it's like over there? So Ted came over, met Mary Ryan and the Grennans and things and said, it's a right place over there. And he liked it. And so then the plan started. What do you do when oh, he comes Jenny to New Ross? He was coming to New Ross from the time he was nominated. That was the plan the whole way through. There was no chance. He might have known about it. He didn't know about it until much later. Did, oh, they did. And, and not, not only my father, half the town. Everybody, everybody was doing them. Every supermarket had a Kennedy special and all sorts of things. So and that day here in New Ross, your dad yes. had a key role. Well, he was the chairman of the council. So they took their job very seriously. So, so the vice chairman of the council met him up in the park and brought him along and introduced him to the chairman of the council <laughs> on the quay in your ass. When he got out of the car, he said, Mayor Minahan, he says, my brother Ted said he had a right time here and he sends his best wishes. So they were off in a hack then. And, they, and they how went. did the family remember that day? I mean, what a day. So we've been dining out on it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I love how they reeled him in from the get-go. They weren't going to let him be until no. he stood on the ground in New Ross. No. Now, you left the quayside then, Evelyn, and you travelled to the Kennedy homestead. So what happened there? Yeah, about five miles or so, or four miles from the statue, is a very clearly marked route to the Kennedy homestead. And this is the home of some of JFK's ancestors. Rhines and Grennans are two of the surnames, of course, connected with JFK. And I met Patrick Grennan, who's a descendant of his, at the Kennedy homestead. And his mother still lives at the original house. And Patrick and the family developed. I have to say it's a wonderful museum there with archive footage, personal items of the Kennedys, all sorts of wonderful things in the collection which really bring history to life, you know. So here he tells me, introduces me to the homestead and then he talks more about JFK's enduring appeal to visitors. My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So the connection with your family is what? Our side of the family are the family that stayed. Patrick Kennedy, JFK's great-grandfather, left in 1848 and his three siblings stayed here in Dungancell. And descendants of all three actually still reside in the locality. And we're descended from the sibling that stayed in the home place. So when he came to visit, he came here? Yeah, so he visited here in 1947 and then 1963 as president. And I think people just want to see the place. And there was bus loads, queues of cars coming down the road after the president's visit. And what do your family remember of that visit initially? There was a photograph of the president in our living room, but my grandmother was trying to ignore it after a few years and just set up a room for people to look into. And this is the house over here on the left? Yeah, and we still live here. We still live on the property that the president visited. But I just decided to make use of the people that were visiting and looking for, I suppose, answers and a bit of information. And that's why I put the exhibition together. If I was going to be standing here talking to people anyway, I put in a proper display and make the best of it, yeah. And when tours come, like, what do they say to you about why they're here? What is the draw, do you think? An awful lot of people say it's the bucket list. People are so interested in JFK and his legacy. There's so many books written about it. Like, I know one lady, in 2002, I went to visit her collection of books and she had... Was it 2,400 You're kidding books. me. Yeah. 
different but, publications. But how do you explain that, the enduring appeal? Like, I suppose he was the person that said to mankind, you could say, we'll put a man in the moon. And like, that's one of the most defining moments in, in mankind's history. And then he changed how kind of politics worked. Well, he came in and he was so young and so vibrant and they brought glamour to it. And I think he offered hope in the words he said, yeah. That's Patrick Grennan, descendant of JFK, talking to Today with Claire Byrne reporter Evelyn O'Rourke for her report this morning from New Ross on the 60th anniversary of Kennedy's visit to the town. Joe Duffy spoke to Martha on this afternoon's Live Line about a door-to-door collector that came to her house. Do you think there's any possibility this collector could be genuine? I don't know. Maybe she is, Joe. I didn't see her myself. It was my husband who took her message at the, at the front door. Even though the organisation she's collecting for say they don't have collectors, um, door-to-door ah, okay. collectors. So tell us, tell okay. us what happened, Martha. So my husband was heading out to the supermarket last Thursday evening, so it was dark, about five o'clock. And uh, when, he, when he closed the front door, she was right behind him and she said, oh, hello, you know, introduced yeah. herself. I'm new to the road. Uh, very nice to meet you. I'm going to be doing a run in aid of the Marie Keating Foundation. Um, and your neighbours have all, you know, the neighbours have been very kind. In fact, your next door neighbour, we'll call her Mary, yeah. has just sponsored me. And my husband recognised Mary's name as, as the next door neighbour. So... This woman seemed very chatty and friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband knew that somebody new had moved in across the road in number 11, where she said, you know, she was living and told him where she had moved from and everything. And then uh, he said, well, I'm really sorry, but I actually don't have any cash on okay. me. He never has cash. And she said, oh, don't worry. I c- you can revolute me. And uh, she showed him the sponsorship form thing that she had and he could see several names on there that he recognised of neighbours and they seemed to have been very generous in their offerings. There was many 50s on the on the list. Okay. Um, yeah. So he sort of thought, well, this all looks, you know, it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck. So mm-hmm. he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll revolute you. And he opened up his revolution. He had 40 quid on it as it happened and he gave her that money. And told me about it when I got home from work, thought nothing more of it. And then Friday evening, uh, texts started to come through on our neighbourhood WhatsApp group of people saying, I'm not sure if she was 100% that woman, you know. Mm-hmm. It, something about it didn't stack up and she had given different house numbers to different neighbours. Uh, one neighbour reported her as being uh, 12 or 13. You know, according to my husband, she was late 20s. So, we and, and somebody else spotted her with a group of young lads behind her outside. So, mm-hmm. The picture just didn't stack up. And then this, I mentioned it to some other neighbours in the locality and they texted me this morning to say that same woman was on our road yesterday giving the similar story. Collecting and money. So collecting mo- money. Collecting money. And the more yeah. WhatsApp groups I put it out to Joe, the more people came back and said, oh, yeah, she was here, she was here, you know. So it was all within the locality. And then this morning I happened to be uh, out for a swim and I mentioned it to my swimming buddies. And one of them said, oh, something similar happened in Port Marnock to my dad a few weeks ago. Okay. This woman called to the door and said, uh, you know, she was collecting and she said she was a daughter of his neighbour. And, you know, so he didn't have any money, felt bad and, and uh, 
you know, at a later stage called over to this man and said, oh, I felt bad. I had no money to give your daughter. Mm -hmm. And the man said, I don't have a daughter. So I I don't know if it's a related scam or the same woman or I I don't know. Now, well, you know, when you you say I'm doing a run, I'm looking for sponsorship, you normally get the money after you complete the challenge. Well, that's true. That's true. But But she wanted the money beforehand. She wanted the money up front, but I suppose in this day and age, it is quite unusual to get people door to door looking for sponsorship. Yeah, it is, it is, it is. And the, on, the only hook that would have drawn my husband in was that she said she was a neighbour. We live on a cul-de-sac and okay. it's a very friendly, you know, welcoming well, She said place. she was collecting so for, for the Marie Keating Foundation. She did, um, yeah. And Liz Yates is a CEO of that wonderful organisation. Marie, good afternoon. Okay. Liz, good afternoon of the Marie Keating Foundation. Good afternoon, Joe. Do you have door-to-door collectors out at the minute? Not at the minute, Joe. No, we do not. Okay. And when we do, um, those door-to-door collectors or anybody indeed collecting on behalf of the Marie Keating Foundation carries clear identification. They Mm. would never ask for cash. Okay. um, Okay. They would also know uh, everything about the the charity and the work that the Marie Keating Foundation does. And we would always show our identification um, and show exactly what we are fundraising for. Is there any possibility, Liz? Um, I think you know the suburb. It's a pretty identifiable um, suburb. It's not a sprawling suburb by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Could somebody be out of the generosity of their own heart, uh, be in a giving mode and say, I'll go round and collect money for the for the Marie Keating Foundation and I'll send it to them. Are you aware of that? Um, that as as your caller there said, Joe, Marty, that, yeah. that, that very rarely happens. You know, yeah. if anybody is organising a fundraiser on our behalf, we liaise with them, we talk to them, we give them the, on. you know, normally people mm-hmm. use online secure donation methods to fundraise now through social media, through yeah. website, through um, legitimate websites. They do not ask for cash and you must have a permit to ask for cash. So That's if anybody point, yeah, is yeah. asking a person, you know, for a cash mm-hmm. donation, even if it's on the street, they must have, you know, they must have a, a permit from the local guard, a superintendent. So I would always question anybody. We we don't have a Revolut account, you okay. know, so um, yeah. and, and so that would immediately, I suppose, ring an alarm bell for me um, if anybody called to my door. That's Liz Yates, Chief Executive Officer of the Marie Keating Foundation, talking to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line about a new, well, new to me, scam that seems to be going around where people pretend to be collecting money door to door for charities. On this morning's nine o'clock show, Brendan Courtney spoke to Neve, whose adult son has Asperger's. Despite being a university graduate, her son is struggling to find a job. And Neve told Brendan all about him. My son will be 24 in January. Yeah. Um, he was diagnosed when he was eight. Um, so, yeah, he, he graduated June 12 months ago and did really, really well. Got uh, a 1-1 degree. And then started, well, he took a little bit of time, did a bit of, you know, took the summer off and then started looking for work. Um, and he wasn't, he was looking at both ends of the, of the spectrum. So he was looking for work in his field, but he was also happy to take a kind of a minimum wage job, you know, until something came up 
Yeah. But unfortunately, very little, to be honest. Um, he applied for about 60 jobs. He maybe got 10 interviews. Um, and out of that came two things. One was an unpaid internship and the other was a Christmas job in a shop, but just because he knew somebody there. Um, and otherwise it's rejection after rejection after rejection. Um, so, yeah, it's tough. Right. OK, so um, did you struggle to get supports for him in, when he was in school? No, no. School was was a completely different story. I mean, I we were lucky where we were living um, when he was eight. That there was a lot of support actually around at that time. I'm not sure it's as good anymore. But when he was in school, um, he's 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 highly intelligent, very capable. He didn't need an SNA. He just needed resource hours in the school and you know a little bit of accommodation in terms of maybe sitting up the front of the class so that he was closer to the teacher and you know, yeah. being allowed to go out if he needed a little break away from, you know, if things got too much for him or whatever. Um, and while he's in school, so I, I kind of equipped myself with as much knowledge as I could. I went to lots of different courses and I got as much information as I could to help him through school. That was okay. If there was a problem in school, I could go to the school. I could yeah. speak to the principal. I could speak to the resource teacher. I could say, we're having this issue. What do we do about this? That was primary school, secondary school. Even when he went to college, he had a support yeah. person there. Um, I'd kind of know if he was struggling, and I'd say, I think it's time for you to contact your support person. And he'd do that, and then we'd talk about it, and what do they say, and what's the plan, and, you know, yeah. if there's anything I can do. But then when he goes looking for a job, you can't go with him. You can't go with him for an interview. You can't get on to an employer well, and say, it. And I think what we're identifying this here, is my Niamh, son, he's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. But he needs this support. This generation of parents have figured out, for the most part, uh, the supports they need, and not they're obviously not always there. But now it's yeah. the, the, this balancing act between minding him and wanting to give him his independence, yeah, and also exactly. then yeah, exactly. you, you, when you have to let go of his hand, right? So yeah, it's now. Yeah. Oh, I think. Well, you're right. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Oh, sorry, as I was saying to your researcher earlier, you never stop being a parent. You never stop supporting them. You never stop advocating for them. But you can't do it openly when they're an adult. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like they have, they, you can't, as I said, you can't hold their hand and go with them to an interview. That is up to them. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, yeah, it, it's just, yeah, it's tough because so, you can support them at home, but you can't support them out there. Yeah, and instinctively, like our our. our our adult nature is to try and find solutions, right? That's just what we try and do exactly. as, as caring yeah, humans in the yeah, world. Uh, yeah, but you can't, yeah. you can only do so much now and you've pretty much done all you can do. So now well, I would this say, is it. yeah. So do, do you think what I'm, what I'm trying, what I'm trying to get around to is in a way, it's almost like it's the responsibility of employers now to take up the gauntlet with people, you know, to, to pee on the other side of that door now and understand that people are, are neurodiverse, you know? Yeah, yeah. You see, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. You see, like I'm not obviously at interviews with my son when he's going, but I, I think there's a couple of issues. Um, so I spoke to him last night, and I said, look, I might be on the radio tomorrow. What do you want me to say? So, some of the issues are that, you know, with Asperger's, people can be a little socially awkward. Mm -hmm. So maybe they don't come across properly in an interview situation. You know, the, the regular interview maybe doesn't suit them. Um, they're definitely very, and very, very honest. Also, they, also, like my son cannot lie. It's also important to say so, the interview interview is ne is nerve wracking for everybody. 
exactly. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. it's difficult for everyone. But even more so, I yeah. think. Yeah, even more so. Um, yeah, my son is very honest. So, you know, if, if an interviewer says, you know, will you be able to do X, Y, or Z? You know, you or I will say, oh, of course we can. And we'll figure it out. But he's going to say, well, actually, I might have a problem with that. Do you know what I mean? That they're so honest yeah. that maybe they're not portraying themselves as well as they could. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it, it, yeah, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't know how else to put it, but it's just hard. And it's hard to see him being knocked back again and again and again. And seeing, you know, people of his own age going out and doing things and getting jobs. Now, like my son is fantastic. He's brilliant. He's highly intelligent. He keeps himself busy. He volunteers. He, you know, he does courses. He, he's not sitting around at home moping. But at the same time, he, sees, he doesn't see any progress for himself, you know, in terms of a career. Yeah, I Getting can, that first step on the ladder is, is hard. I can hear your frustration. So you think, and you're right, obviously, but employers are missing out on, on the, his unique qualities that he can bring to a Absolutely. job. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Asperger's people in general, they're very moralistic. They're very honest. They're very loyal. If you give them a chance, they will absolutely, you know, be an asset to any organisation. But it's just getting over that first stumbling block, you know, and and, and giving them the chance. Giving them the chance. That's the phrase, I think. Yeah. What would you say to the mother who wrote the email to me at the start of the week? I'd say I just, I, I, I feel for her. I know exactly what she's going through. I understand completely. Um, it's not easy. And I agree with her. You know, we struggled when they were young, when, we, when they get the diagnosis and you're trying to say, okay, how does this affect not just the child, but it affects the whole family. And how do you work through that? And you do all of that. You get them through school, you get them through college and you think, that's it. Job done, not job done. You know, um, so I understand and I empathise with her completely. The, uh, the only thing I can say is, um, like, you have to keep reaching out. Um, so, like, my son, he would have got in touch with the ETB. Um, that's the, I don't know what their full title is, sorry. Um, and he would have met with a career guidance counsellor there who talked him through different options. He contacted another organisation that um, did interview skills with him. You know, you just have to keep... Plugging away. That's Neve talking this morning to Brendan Courtney on the nine o'clock show about her son who has Asperger's and his struggles to enter the workforce after graduating from college. Weight loss drug Ozempic has been having quite the moment in the sun so far in 2023, with reports that its beneficial effects might reach far beyond just weight loss. Earlier this month, shares in Krispy Kreme donuts fell amid market concerns that the drug would reduce demand for their product. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Sean Keyes, finance editor with The Currency, told Claire how the drug is affecting many businesses. And he started with the Krispy Kreme story. Krispy Kremes, if you look at their accounts and the most recent earnings, they're fine. But the analysts and the people whose job it is to assess and forecast the future for this company are looking at the forecasts. They're looking at the percentage of Americans who are expected to be on Ozempic. They're looking at what the average consumption of, of sugary foods happens to, does once you get on the drugs. And they're putting two and two together. They're saying, wow, this is very serious. And so one analyst cut their forecast for the value of the company by 35%. Mm. And those sorts of 
calculations are being made all over the economy. It goes way beyond the very obvious ones like donuts. So that's, I mean, the impact of this thing, even though it's very expensive in the United States, they're expecting that more and more people will want to take it and will take it. That's right. I mean, Nova Nordisk, who, who produces it, they're thinking, they obviously want to make as much money as possible and they're pricing it at a level where they're able to, they think it'll be um, taken up on. And I think what they're thinking is the, the impact of diabetes and on, on obesity on the US economy and the US health system is enormous. It's been estimated, one estimate was, was something like 1.7 trillion, like 7% of the, U, the US economy is, is the cost of, of obesity. So they're, they're pricing at such a level that the insurance companies and the government will step in and say, OK, it's worth paying this price. Even though the price is very high, the, the costs that we're currently out dealing with obesity and the various uh, comorbidities of various problems is still worth paying. So there's a push and pull here because you've got the health economy saying, yes, let's get as many people on this who need it as possible. Mm. And you've got the people who produce these this processed sugar laden food going, um, can we slow this down a little bit because our model is going to shrink? And I don't know what a lot of them are going to do. I mean, it's it, it, the Coca-Cola talked about it and they said, no, no, don't worry. Uh, two thirds of our products are healthy. It'll be fine. But I'm not so sure. I mean, it's... It, you can imagine in a, in a world without, if you, in a world where people have a bit more willpower and smaller appetites, do, do they do they just have one less sugary drink, or do they maybe stop drinking sugary drinks altogether and mm. they go on to a different type of path and different types of lifestyle? So I think it's it's going to be very difficult for a lot of these companies to sidestep this one. Yeah, it's hard to to you know overestimate the the impact of this. I mean, the value of that company Novo Nordisk is huge. It's like equivalent to the GDP of Denmark. Or, or greater than that. It's greater it? than that. It's it's now it's the biggest European company in the world now, or the most valuable European company. Sorry, what am I talking about? The biggest European company. In the, world. the most valuable European company is now Novo Nordisk. It's right. Around, it's around the twelfth biggest in the so, world. So all of the other pharmaceutical companies are trying to get in on the act, are they? They are, and it's it's very it's whatever about Krispy Kreme. It's bad for them, but I think it's absolutely the worst possible position to be in is to be a pharmaceutical company because for Krispy Kreme, right? If their sales drop ten percent they might buy 10% less dough and sugar and whatever, and their costs go down as well as their revenue. So their profits go down, you know, a bit more than 10%, but, you know, it's not... It's, the whole it's not thing catastrophic. Is, it's not catastrophic. But for Pfizer or the likes of those, they're in the business of treating all of the, co- all of the illnesses that are associated with obesity. Ah. And unlike Krispy Kreme, their costs are fixed. Mm-hmm. So if, if Pfizer's revenue drops 10%, their profit might drop 40%. And the value of their company might drop 40%. Okay, so you've touched on something really interesting. So people might initially take Ozempic to lose some weight and they might lose up to 20% of their body weight. But what has been discovered is it's having all sorts of other beneficial health impacts too. Yes, and this is where, okay, we're, we're, we're going out of the realm of, of peer-reviewed science now. So take this with, uh, you know, discount it accordingly. So... Um, so anecdotally, people who are taking these drugs, they report that they've got have less cravings for alcohol and other things. And people are saying, hmm, that's interesting. There have been um, studies for about 10 years now on rodents, um, on the effect of these fa- this family of drugs on, on, their, on alcohol, alcoholism in, ro- in rodents, if, if such a thing exists. But anyway, the, the, the researchers who looked at that found that these GLP drugs reduce alcohol dependence in rodents by something crazy like 50%. 
So now the studies are ongoing and we're going to find out. So they're exploring that and it might have a similar impact, you know, it's said on, on smoking, on other addictions too. So yeah. all of that is being looked at. Yes. But, but there are measurable impacts on health conditions related to obesity, aren't there? They're right. So the first first objection to this thing was, oh, um, it won't work. You know, the, the weight won't stay off. And that turned out not much to be true. And then the next objection was, OK, well, maybe people will lose weight, but that's not to say that they'll have less heart disease or, or stroke risk or whatever. And now the, the studies are coming through for those associated illnesses. Uh, risk of stroke and heart disease is down by 20% in one study. So, mm-hmm. yes, there's good evidence for that. But on the other side, there's fairly horrible side effects that come with this drug. There are something like 50% of people report nausea, um, um, diarrhea, just un- unpleasant side effects. But Digestive problems digestive in problems. general. Yeah. So, you know, all, with, all, with all of this whole story, you're kind of stacking these assumptions one on top of the other until you get to these huge numbers. And it's it's sort of you have to, to sort of take it, take it with a pinch of salt. But, yeah, definitely part of this is you're assuming that a lot of people, that maybe one seventh of the US population, are going to be willing to deal with these side effects. Yeah, but there's a huge um, level of interest and excitement around all of this. I mean, it's being compared to when statins came along, that it could be that level of a game changer. Is that right? Well, God, I've, I spent a couple of days looking at it. And I mean, it's hard not to be excited if, if, it's, if it's true that this thing is some sort of like a willpower enhancer. That's roughly what they're talking about with this, with the, with the smoking and the, the other um, addictive behaviours, that it interrupts the pathways in your brain that cause you to do this sort of self-destructive stuff, you know, the, the dopamine rewards and all that sort of stuff. If, you, if it really does do that, if it really does inhibit your kind of more, your worst impulses, I mean, that's very powerful. That's like changing the whole human condition. You know, it's not just a, 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 a medical drug. But all we know for sure is that when it comes to, to food, it, it sort of shuts down that hunger hormone, doesn't it? Yes. It, so it, it makes, it does two things. It makes you, it shuts down the hunger hormone, as you said, and it slows down your sort of digestive, your metabolism, I guess. Maybe that's not exactly the right word, but it has some, some impact on your digestive system and it slows down your, your appetite for the food. Mm-hmm. So um, great excitement around it in the pharmaceutical industry, some nerves in the, in the food industry. And just on that, Walmart as well, did they sound a, a warning note about their sales? Yeah, so Walmart are interesting because they're a company that has both pharmacies and food under one roof. So they know you know, exactly what patients are, what they're taking and what they're eating. Oh, through the loyalty card, probably. Through the loyalty <laughs> card. So, yeah, so they say it's anonymized. So they, they, they're, they're sure that they're, they're quite clear on that. But they're saying and they're anonymized. Customer data says that they know customers of theirs who are taking prescriptions for Ozempic are reducing their spending on, on um, I think it's like they're reducing their spending on food. But then the CFO is keen to stress, but don't worry, they're buying other stuff instead. But yes, they did notice that the yeah. customers who are on Ozempic were well, spending less on food. They're in a great position because they're selling them the Ozempic if they're not selling them the food, right? Right. So all you have to do is start uh, the world's largest integrated <laughs> retailer and uh, you're covered, yeah. Sean Keyes, finance editor with The Currency, giving Claire Byrne and listeners a bulletproof retail tactic to survive what many are predicting will be an ozempic fueled contraction in food sales in the near future. It'll be fascinating to see how this one plays out. It's been described as the biggest reality game show in the world ever. It's Squid Game, The Challenge. And it has an Irish contestant. Eric Roberts, not 
Julia's brother, I'm guessing, spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon about being part of the streaming TV event and he came armed with stats. So I think it was close to 100,000 applicants and it was narrowed down to the 456 of us then. Right. And what was the selection process like? Um, it was long. It was uh, it was about six months of over and back with producers and cast and directors. Um, and it was around December last year then when I found out that I had been one of the, the lucky contestants selected. Wow. Uh, so from 100,000 to 456, you must have been very excited when you got the final call. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't something that I was continuously thinking about. I had applied and I'd done a few Zooms, but it was always kind of in the back of my mind and I thought it's 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 never going to happen. And then when I got the call then, it became very, very real because it was only a few weeks later that we were flown to London to start the filming. And it was just, we were thrown right in after the first game. Right. Um, the red light, green light, which was so extremely intense and one of the hardest things I've now, ever before had to do. We, it all be, became very real. Before we go on, for those, just to bring everybody along with us, Will you describe the original Squid Game, which was a drama? Just describe that to people who may not have seen it. Yeah, so it was one of the, the biggest shows on Netflix um, and it was essentially a series set in Korea where uh, people that were, let's say, not, not well off and needed an opportunity I suppose, to make some quick money were brought to this game. Um, and it was a gruesome, gruesome series where people were killed off one by one. And I suppose they didn't know at the time when they agreed to do it that they were going to be murdered, essentially, mm. to, to, uh, to win this prize. And our show wasn't much different in the sense that only one winner and people were eliminated uh, throughout the show. And it was just totally submersive and totally intense and a real mirror of the show. But nobody died. Not that I know of, anyway. Right. Uh so, as you, you mentioned already there, the first game is called... Red Light, Green Light. That was the first game and probably one of the most famous games from the show and easily one of the most difficult things that I've ever been put through. And it, it, it's a sort of a... It's a version. Uh, it's a version of the game you would have played as a kid where one person is there, they turn around and people have to try and make their way towards them and then when they turn around they have to stand like statues. I don't know. There's, there's different names for it all over the country but people know what it is. So it's a version of that, isn't it? Absolutely. They're all sort of child games, but when you're there and you're in that situation, it doesn't feel like a child's game at all. Mm. Um, it was a really, really high pressure situation. Um, and half half the cast had been cut that day. So it was really, really intense on that day of filming. So so the scale of this is huge. The doll, um, who is a bit spooky, is about four, four and a half, five metres tall. Um, and of course, everybody who was there would have seen the original. So immediately in your head, you're going back to seeing people been killed, albeit fiction. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very surreal being there because we just we felt like we were on the show. It was just total fear throughout. No one wanted to go home on day one. So everyone, everyone was really, really anxious going into that. And we knew the stakes and we knew only half the people there were going to be going through that day. Um, so the, the episodes have aired now and uh, I watched it back this morning and I was actually the second person to cross the line which oh, yeah. was, which well was absolutely crazy yeah and I was delighted to, to just get through that that was my main goal going over there just get through day one so I was delighted to have done that Eric this is the moment when you all the contestants are allowed in to the first game and, and the reality I suppose of what they're involved in is obvious to them yeah I mean absolutely here it is This is 
place is nuts. This is incredible. That doll is scary as hell. It's, it just got real, boss. Attention all players. Just got real. Young he is the doll. Scary is right. Um, yeah. And then you get the rules for the first game. Here we go. PTSD here in the back. Yeah, well, that, that, now, I know you say that in jest, but I actually said that upstairs. Um, because it, not just what we see on the show, but the ba- behind the scenes, where did you sleep, for example? So after that game, if you were lucky enough to make it through, we were then brought to the dorms. And this, again, was just the whole set of the show. So we were brought into this room with no windows and there was 200 bunk beds stacked on top of each other. So we were all in the one room for 24 hours a day. We had no concept of time. We didn't know if it was day or night. And we were just locked away in that room. And we, when, whenever there was game days, we were brought out to compete in the games. And if you were lucky enough to get through those, you were brought back to the dorm. And the dorm just got smaller and smaller, or I suppose bigger and bigger, because there was less contestants. And you agree to all that? I mean, yeah, not knowing really the extent of what I was getting myself in for. As I say, it was it was totally submersive in that there was no kind of production behind the scenes. It was just cameras everywhere and we were put in there and I suppose they just built a show around whatever happened. So it was really intense, both mentally and physically. Yeah, but presumably no one was actually murdered. Were they? That's Eric Roberts, Irish contestant in Netflix's Squid Game The Challenge, talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, the C word. Yes, Christmas is just around the corner and Santa isn't the only one who's going to have to make ends meet. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, financial planner Owen McGee had some helpful tips to manage the Christmas budget, starting with making a list and presumably checking it twice. This is the time, isn't it? If you haven't done it already, sit down with a pen and paper and make a list. Absolutely. Check it twice. But no, this is the time you need to sit down, pen and paper. Something happens in our brain when we sit down with a piece of pe- piece of paper and a pen and we physically write it out as opposed to putting it in our phone or something. The name, the maximum amount that you're going to spend on that person and ideally what you're going to buy if you know what you're going to buy them. Now, remember, <clears throat> the amount of money you put down is... a limit it's not a target right mm-hmm. so <clears throat> if you put down 50 euros and it's only 30 euros great spend the 30 euros and move on what you need to do though is stick to that list because oftentimes what happens to us is when we're out shopping and particularly if we do our shopping early we then go out a couple of weeks later and say oh was it all right I do this all the time so I'm a, an early Christmas shopper but I look at the thing that I got for the person I go that's not great now oh, it, and it's purely because I got it in October and it, it doesn't look as good in December there's a name for that and it's called recency bias okay. so recency bias is we put more emphasis or importance on things that happened very recently compared to something that happened ages ago so if you had a fight with one of your kids this morning right you're going to have more emphasis on that than the fight you had six months ago that you don't even remember about and it's the exact same 
around things when it comes to buying Christmas presents or any presents of that matter. You buy it in September, you're sitting in the middle of December and you're going, oh, did I actually, did I get the right thing for them? Was it grand? Will I buy them something else? And you've also suffered financially because you're going to go, you've taken the hit in September of the purchase and financially you can go, oh, I can do it again. So the only way around that is have your list strike them off the list and don't do 10 lists just do one list and keep going back to it and strike them off the list so you don't get caught mm-hmm. out now equally you're an early shopper yeah. the late shoppers can get caught out really bad right because if you're running around on Christmas Eve and you're kind of going oh, I'll just grab that because I mightn't see something else and then you find something else and go oh I grabbed that as well because the first thing was grand and this is grand and two grands will make it right so you have to be careful about the urgency of the last minute shopper and the stuff that you end up buying and remember, these are just presents. Like, I challenge you to tell me even one present you got last Christmas, Claire. Mm, yeah, I know. You might it's remember tricky. one, right? <laughs> but you definitely don't remember them all. So what I would say is, is just be conscious that it's not really about the present. It's about the day and what's going to happen on the day and around those couple of days. And the present is a sign of, yeah, look, I was thinking about you, but that's all it is. And yes. don't go putting yourself in a right. financial People hole. you're right, don't remember a few don't. months later what, the, what they got. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um borrowing at Christmas people do it don't they but I'm sure you're not a a fan of taking out a Christmas loan no one in three people will borrow according to some research one in three people will borrow for Christmas Um, the most popular is credit cards is where it'll go people say oh that's not a loan it is a loan overdrafts are loans credit cards are loans I did a poll yesterday on Instagram and I was kind of smug about it because 91% of my followers won't borrow for Christmas, which ah, is which is nice. They're your followers, yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's something going on there. But of the people who will borrow, it is still 55% of them will borrow on the credit card. They're of my followers. They will borrow on the credit card. Family loans is another one and other loans is a, is a big mm-hmm. problem. So what I would say is, is that you need to be careful about that borrowing money for Christmas It'll feel great on the day, but it won't feel great in the middle of January. And absolutely not. Like paying back a Christmas loan in March, there's not, nothing fun about that. No, absolutely but not. But if you have to do it, you have, you to, have do to do it. You have to do it. It is Christmas. It's incredibly important for us. We do, and I'm not one of you bad humbug, if you do have to do it. But what you need to do for yourself is start looking at Christmas 2024 now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so over the next couple of weeks, every time you spend money, take out your phone and put in, I don't know, the Christmas tree, the extra few bits you threw into the shopping, the present, the the work night out, the unofficial work night with your real mates in work, all of those <laughs> things, right? Get them all into your notes and don't put, pay much attention to them. Just put up a list and then in around kind of middle of January, 10th of January, before the credit card comes in and makes you sad, um, but while your brain is still in it, take out that list, write it down and figure out how much did Christmas actually cost me. Now, for a family with kids, Christmas is going to cost, they suggest somewhere around €1,400. For a family without kids, it's about €800-ish. So let's just imagine you do this list, you work it all out and it's €1,400. Your next step is to say, right, it's cost me €1,400 for Christmas this year. It's likely to cost me the same again next year or something in and around that. €1,400 divided by 10 is 140 euros a month. So you arrive on the 1st of November next year with 1,400 euros. Sounds very simple and you've got Christmas covered and you're not borrowing next year. People can often get put off with that. I can't put 140 euros I was euros just a month. going to say, if the answer to the question, can you afford to put 140 euro away is no, then we probably shouldn't be spending the 1,400 euro on yeah, Christmas. Yeah, I, I would be very hard on that for holidays so I would often use the same thing work out you're going away next July let's say that's 10 months away just to make the math simple you're going to spend 2,000 euros you need to put 200 euros a month aside for your holiday next July if you can't afford 200 euros you can't afford to go on holidays you can't say that about Christmas Claire because like you can because you're a bit more bah humbug than I am right
right? But you, I'm not. But you just you just said it, so it's all on you, right? <laughs> but what I would say is, if you can't afford the hundred forty euros a month in that example. 70 euros a month 35 euros a month whatever so you, you can afford yeah. and what you're trying to do there is if you borrowed the full 1400 euros this year next November if you have half of the money you're only borrowing half next year mm-hmm. and you can try and break the cycle over a couple of years Christmas is not a financial surprise like it happens every single year yeah, and, and same we need with to the be holidays, prepared for it. You know this thing with shopping early and I'm I'm good at this cognitive dissonance as well when it comes to holidays. If I pay for something way in advance or I've done the shopping early, I trick myself into believing I can spend more around the actual event. Yeah, some cost fallacy. Some cost, that's another word, right? But it is, we've already sunk the cost into it. Yeah. It's gone. And actually... One of the things that some people more recently are starting to call this girl math. I don't know if you've come across girl math. but I have not, but it sounds it's, very it's, pejorative. It, yeah, it's it's paid for already. I've already spent the money on it. And you come around to it and you go, oh, now it's gone. The money's out of my pocket. And now I've got loads of extra money to spend on this weekend away or this holiday or whatever else it is. And yeah, you have to be careful of that. And again, that's about being prepared for it, having it written down, knowing what it is, what your total cost is going to be and being very prepared for mm. it. We also have to be careful this week in particular about Black Friday. Like we do have... That's this week, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's on Friday this week. Just be careful. Remember a couple of things that people should be aware of. Your rights are exactly the same buying in a Black Friday deal as they are any other time of the year. Okay, so your consumer rights aren't affected by the fact that it's in a sale. The good, if you find that it's faulty within 30 days, it needs to be replaced. Unless they they say to you, can we repair it? Sorry, you can get a refund. You can agree to a repair or a repair or a replacement, but only if you agree to it. You're entitled to a refund if it's faulty within the first 30 days. Now, what I will say about that is faulty is the word here. It's not that you don't like it. It's just that it's faulty mm-hmm. and it's not fit for its purpose or as described. And you, you can get it. The other thing that people often get the runaround on is you go into the shop and you say, I'm not happy with this. And they say, oh, you need to contact XYZ company, yes. the, the manufacturer. Your contract is with the shop. Ah. It's with the person who sold it to you and don't take that run around. Mm-hmm. You have gone into a contract and an agreement with them and they need to honour that agreement. Sound, Christmas and Black Friday advice there from financial planner Owen McGee on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Milo Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.